Who's ever heard that song, that Appalachian Carol, I wonder as I, or I, I wonder as I wander? I mean, we've sung it in this church, but besides the church, have you heard it outside the church? So um, my first experience with that song was um, a, uh, a Christmas in Vienna celebration that they have every year, and um, they have all the opera stars come sing this. Oh, by the way, are we ready for the skit and, uh, and preparation downstairs? Let's let the young people go on downstairs. And uh, Okay. Okay. Actually, we're going to stay up here and, and uh, interact together. <laughs> so um, anyway, I heard this song uh, sung by uh, Placido Domingo, who is one of the great tenors of the last uh, 40 years or whatever. He's my favorite opera tenor. I think, the way his voice sounds of all time. And some of you are like, what is an opera tenor? And Andy Griffith said, well, opera is just a bunch of high-class hollering. And uh, it is. <laughs> but I heard that song, which is a, a bluegrass Appalachian hillbilly song, sung for the first time by one of the w- most uh, uh, um, powerful upper-crust singers in the recent history, Placido Domingo. I want, like that kind of thing. And I was like, well, that's an interesting song. And then I looked into it. I was like, that's American, that's American stuff. I didn't, never even heard of that. So anyway, um, I always needle Mike about it because he hadn't had that experience of hearing uh, Placido Domingo sing it. Okay, so I want to open the, um, the question box. We did it last week. He said, hey, does anybody have any questions? Just go ahead and put them in the box. And Mike said, Dave, we don't have a box. And um, and I said, well, I got a text from somebody that wanted to ask some questions, and I have invited it, and it, I think it's really good to interact. And here's what we've been talking about. Um, when, you, uh, when you work through um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and the problem of, or the question of Christian spirituality, you got to have the Word of God and the Holy Spirit in this age for you to have a spiritual life, the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. And the problem in Corinth that introduces that is they don't believe in Paul. I mean, they don't listen to him, they don't submit to his authority, and so they don't want to hear from him, and, um, and because he's not polished and refined. He's plain, and, um, but he doesn't need to be polished and refined. He needs to tell them the Word of God, which he got from God, from Jesus himself. And so he's making the case uh, for his authority as an apostle. And so we've been talking a lot about divine authority. Can, for example, can anybody remind me? I mean, I know. But can, does anybody remember what we mean by the word authority? In your culture, it means the abuse of weaker people. Because we're arrogant fools as a civilization. <laughs> But that's not really what authority is. In fact, you have to have authority for the oppressed not to be oppressed, for the weak to be protected. You have to have authority. Uh, it means rulership, okay? Um, do, who rules? Lords rule, right? So um, do pastors rule? That's right. We don't lord it over the flock. We don't rule in that sense, but the elders who rule well are to be worthy of double honor, so... Um, there's a right way to exercise authority. And there is something about rule, but what's the deal? What, 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 is, what do you think is the deal with authority? Responsibility is, I think, very central to the concept of authority. If I have a responsibility to lock my phone up because I have boys, and as they get older, the responsibility will increase in its magnitude to keep my phone and my electronics locked down. Pretty sure we're going to go ahead and shut the internet off from the house. I'm, I'm anticipating. I'm not dealing with anything right now, but I'm pretty sure we're just going to just go uh, caveman on this thing because of the, the troubles of our time. That's um, a responsibility I have, but see, what did I do? I had to make a decision. Who am I to shut off the internet connection to my house. Who am I to say that? No, I'm the daddy. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the one in, in the position to make the decision. What's that? I pay the bills. That's a really good point. Responsibility. See, this is what we're talking about. Authority is a stewardship. It's a delegation. Who, gets all the, who has all the authority, by the way? Where does it come from? I did. Everyone does have authority. Is this seat taken? It's not. All right. 
Everybody does, but it doesn't start with us. It's always from someone else that had it and gave it. The king did not start with his own authority. The king got it from somewhere. You, with the decisions you have to make over your life and stewardship, you are the, you are the decision maker for those that you have to make, but you didn't start with this with yourself. Where does this authority come from? It comes from God. All good things come from God. He's the sovereign of the universe. He's the one with the authority and the one exercising the authority. See what I mean? Like that's, that is straightforward. That is pretty obvious that if God is there, if he is the sovereign and the king of the universe, then all derivative authority has to come from him. And so you start watching the Bible on, for example, authority structures. Start asking questions. Where do kings come from? The Bible has an answer. God establishes kings and God removes rulers, right? Where, where did this husband-wife thing originate? The Bible has a clear explication of how this works in terms of decisions that are made. Check out in the Bible, God made man and then he made woman from man, Genesis chapter 2. And so what about kids? How can you say parents have the authority to make decisions for the best of their children? Well, they came from their parents, and God has clear instructions about the right exercise of decision-making for the betterment and best of our children. And so authority isn't a bad thing, except that we're bad in ourselves and sinful, and we abuse the right to make decisions. So my original question is, what is authority? It's the right to make the decision, right? That's what it means. And so when we start thinking of it that way, we start learning where our bounds are. Sometimes I see you doing something that I don't want you to do, but I don't have the right to make your decision for you. But I also don't have the, but you don't have the right to stop me from saying, I wish you wouldn't do that because that's my decision to say that you make your decision. I make my decision. You see the difference? It's very clean, very plain, very clean the way you think about that. All right, so the question was, now that's, that gets us the context. Here's the question that I received. How in everyday life can we use the authority of God? And what I think the question means is not that we are exercising God's authority, but the doctrine, the principle that God is in charge. How can we live that out? How can we use that? Is that, is that a fair? Uh, okay, so, so the answer that I would propose to you is this is, this is the most important way you apply the word because the word of God is given to you for a relationship with God. It's not something to just read and uh, we just know about these things. And I can tell you about Tiglath Pileser and uh, the fall of, of, uh, of Jerusalem in 605 and 586 or 597. And it's not about the, the little details. The, it, those are important because they're historic and we're living in a historic work of God that's been going on since creation. But the reason you have the Bible is so you'll know God. It's a relationship with him. And sovereignty is the way God relates to his creation. He's in charge. And this is very comforting and very encouraging. Because the one who's in charge has the power to bring forth his righteousness and his goodness and his love. And the one who's sovereign and the one who's omnipotent with all the power to do everything he wants is also the one who only acts in absolute righteousness and acts in perfect love. Absolute power only corrupts absolutely in human affairs where we're sinful, where we're broken, where we're not righteous. But God is holy. He's separate in that sense. He's righteous and holy and good. And so when you have him in charge, that's the best news. We get in despair about politics. We get in despair about all kinds of things, about who are the decision makers and what are they going to do to us. It's a huge problem. It's everywhere you look. And the great solution to that problem is, okay, God is in control. Jesus Christ does control history. And that's how you bring the concept of God's authority to bear in one sense, as you rest in his goodness that he's in charge. And I and you, we are not. That's awesome. It's really good news that God's in charge and I am not. Because I mess things up. Do you ever take a math class? Do you ever miss the, get the wrong answer because you didn't carry the one or whatever? We mess up. That's why you take math. You learn how to reason and how limited is our ability to reason. Well, I can just use a calculator. Yeah, but if you don't use the calculator, you're going to make mistakes. We all do. And that is just 
humbling. So the answer to how we use one way, use the sovereignty of God in, in, in terms of authority, is you recognize he's in charge. And the second way is, if he's in charge, then I've got responsibilities he lays on me. He gets to be God and I get to be the creature. He needs me to obey him because he's the sovereign and I am not. And that's baseline um, Christian worldview. That there, it, it's, you want to hear a fancy phrase? You've heard it before. It's called the creator-creature distinction. The creator's God, and, and, and that's different. And there's an there's a infinite chasm between me and him. There are all kinds of various systems of thinking this through, but the biblical presentation of the God who is there is that there is never any crossing this boundary, this infinite divide between God and man. In fact, God had to himself take on the flesh at Christmas in order for us to have a relationship with him. But this infinite chasm isn't just because of sin, it's because of eternity, infinite knowledge, um, infinite righteousness. Adam and Eve were, couldn't cross this boundary of the creator and the creature. Now that boundary is very freeing because it reminds you that you're not God and you never will be. There are various systems of religion that say that we will be divinized, we will become like God. But that's back in the Garden of Eden. That's Satan. That's Satan's attack, which brings me to the next question. Hopefully, the two answers, uh, God is sovereign, is something we rest in and, and are encouraged by in our troubles, and that God is sovereign so we submit to him and obey him. These are the, the, these are the big ideas about having a relationship with God. And everyone does. It's just not all relationships with God are good uh, or on, his, on God's terms. Um, so the next question was, um, can we not think of the rebellion against God's authority um, as going back to the Garden of Eden. And y- yes, that's for the human race, the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3 tells the story of what we call the fall. And that was where our ancestral federal head, our father, Adam, the first man, rebelled against God in disobedience and died spiritually. And that spiritual death has been transmitted to the entire human race. The whole human race, it's Romans chapter 5. I'm not going to spend a lot of time reading that because there's another place I want to take you to in a minute. But Romans 5 tells you that the first Adam killed us all and the last Adam saves us all. Romans 5. As an Adam all die and Christ shall all be made uh, alive, I believe it says. This is, this is the answer. It goes back to the garden, but that's not where the rebellion against God began. Apparently, it didn't start in Genesis 3. It might have been in the Garden of Eden. There's a lot of speculation. I don't want to get into it. But in Genesis 3, there's already somebody who's fighting against God, and it's not man. In the garden, there was the serpent who was the craftiest of all the animals. Satan's, Satan's fall is before man's fall. Satan precipitated man's fall. It's the serpent in the garden. Actually, if you want to go to Genesis 3, we can turn there just for a minute. Just want to highlight something. This is, this is the story of the, the apple, of the, well, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They weren't supposed to eat it. It's the one prohibition God gave them. He gave them everything, perfect environment, companionship, work to do, uh, good labor that they could enjoy doing as they cultivated God's soil and took care of his creatures. And now, now um, uh, we have the turning point in human history, which is right here at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 3. And I want you to see how it starts. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. It begins with an identification of this character who is going to deceive the woman and tempt her to disobey God. This is the origin of rebellion in the human race, is that there is a being who attacked us by temptation. He did it by temptation in the body of a snake. And snakes do not talk. Even before they crawled on their belly, they did not talk. But this one talked. And uh, the Bible here in Genesis 3 does not identify the snake as Satan, the serpent as Satan. It doesn't say he's Satan and the devil. Revelation chapter 12 says this. He's the serpent of old, the devil, who is Satan. It's this, and so I take the Bible as, a, as an entirety, and so I know from what we have in the New Testament an insight into what's going on in Genesis 3. But I also know that the serpent speaks against God. 
you will not surely die. He directly contradicts the word of God. And the woman believes the snake or the serpent, believes Satan instead of God. And the test of mankind from the very beginning and the test in your life every day is do you believe God or do you believe the alternative? Do you believe what God said or what you can conclude in your fallen and broken reasoning, for example? Which if you're honest with yourself about your reasoning, you find the limits and you, you're, the limits can never get you past where revelation wants to take you, where God's word wants to take you. The woman is told, don't do it. She is told by the serpent, oh, it's not what's going on. And in verse 5, you have what I call the diabolical implication. <laughs> the diabolical implication. The serpent said, you will surely not die in verse 4. You won't die if you eat this fruit. He lies and directly contradicts God's word. And then in verse 5, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God knowing good and evil. This is an implication that impugns or maligns the character of God. He's saying God is petty and he's not good. God is mean and he's holding back. That's what that says. God knows that you'll be like him when you eat from it. That's why he said don't eat it. You won't die. He's just making stuff up to convince you not to eat the power pellet that will give you divinity. Okay? Now that's, that's how she, and then she considered it and turned into a scientist and a philosopher and saw with her eyes and reasoned with her heart and said, let's do it. And, the, and this is, and, and by the way, the Bible doesn't say we fell through Eve. It says we fell through Adam. But the headship thing was taken down through the woman. The attack was on Adam because he's the federal head. Through Adam, we all die. But the way Satan did it was he hit Adam's vulnerability. He, hit, he, he went after Adam's wife. And it's, uh, it's awful to con- contemplate. I think that the, the story we're reading here is one of the most violent, if not the most violent in the Bible. But it's not a violence that involves blood and gore. It's violence to the word of God. It's violence to, to mankind. It, it slaughtered us. And um, when we stand with the Lord Jesus Christ and watch him cast Satan and his fallen angels into the lake of fire, we will not shed a tear for, for Satan. No tears for the devil. We will say in righteousness in our resurrection bodies, watching these proceedings, we will say this is righteous. Glory to God in the highest for his justice, for his holiness, for his goodness in answering the question everyone's been asking what's God going to do about all this the lake of fire is coming and it is prepared for Satan and his fallen angels all right um I like question and answer it's an opportunity to just uh, uh think through together with you on some things and hopefully um uh it's it's edifying for you I wanted to ask um are there any other questions that come to mind about things we've been talking about or just things in the Bible or the Word um, or anything you might want to you, you might want to know about that I could help you with if if you have any any questions. I got one. Yes, sir. So in the, in the First Corinthians two, spirituality. Yes. Um, the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Yes. Capital S. Spirit, yes. Yeah, the Holy not Spirit. Human Spirit. Correct. The, the, okay, so. First Corinthians. It's always kind of confused me because there's four God different is uses. God and it just okay. You know. That's interesting. That's an interesting thought. There are four different possible uses of spirit, and I think three of them are actually being used. The word spirit in the in this passage, and that's the hard. That's what makes this passage so hard. First Corinthians two. If you want to look at it, we're talking about it in the study on Christian spirituality now on Wednesday nights. All right. So in this passage, um, the word pneuma. The P isn't actually silent, it turns out in Greek. But um, that word, uh, where we get the word pneumatic, okay, that, that means air in Greek, or breath, or wind, or spirit, or the spirit that you have, or the Holy Spirit of God, okay, or the mindset or the worldview people have, you know, the German word is zeitgeist, or, or, or Weltanschauung, that, the, 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 the set of ideas that we kind of all share, that's a spirit of the times. And that's how the Bible will use it. Um, and also an attitude. There are so many various uses of this word, and it becomes very challenging. 
So what, you know, we're trying to drill down to what is actually happening. And um, so verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 2, now we have not received, we have received not the spirit of the world. That's the attitude. The spirit of the world isn't demons or something. It's an attitude or a perspective that he's talking about there, but the spirit who is from God. And I think that's a little S spirit, the human spirit. We've been regenerated so that we can know the things of God. You don't have a relationship with God in spiritual death. You need spiritual life. And that's my interpretation of that word spirit in verse 12. And your Bible might have it capitalized. And that would be an editorial decision that a translator made that I'm saying I'm not so sure that's the right decision. In fact, I think it should be a little lowercase s, as Rick is asking. All right, the spirit who is from God. So that we may know the things freely given to us by God. So you need this capability given by the panuma from God. And I'll just say that that phrase, the, new, the Spirit from God, the way it's said there, it's unique in the New Testament. Ta panuma ta ektu theu. It's, a, it's a, a unique construction that makes us think, not that that means it has to be the human spirit, but there's something going on here that is um, being highlighted. Now in verse 13, now the whole point is that God, that God has given his word through the apostles and you need to get hold of it. And if you, if you will, you'll become spiritual and mature and be able to discern, be a discerning person. Um, because of spiritual maturity, which is uh, what Paul needs the Corinthians to, to get hold of, and they are not. They're babies in Christ. So in verse 13, we, we speak these things of divine wisdom, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual with spiritual, and I think spiritual words with spiritual persons. I think that's, that's right. But spiritual with spiritual. All right, so in other words, this is one of the hardest passages in the New Testament because of the multiple uses of the word spirit. And some, some people are like, the Bible shouldn't be this hard. And I think that's a sovereignty of God issue. You take that up with the creator of the universe who gave this to the Apostle Paul. What I, want to do, what I do want to say that everyone can agree is that the apostles are giving us this special revelation from God, this wisdom. And it's not taught by human wisdom, but in spirit wisdom, Holy Spirit wisdom. And he is the one who teaches, I believe, in verse 13. But the natural, let's translate that properly, the soulish man, no spirit, soul. The sukikos, the soulish man, translated natural. This means born without, uh, born separated from God and not yet regenerated. This is what he's talking about. Uh, a soulish man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. And this doesn't mean that the person can't understand what Moses is saying in Genesis. Okay? It means that the person cannot appreciate it. He doesn't welcome it. Uh, the word welcome to decomai, to, to welcome like, hey, y'all come on in. We're glad to have you. The word of God, the naked man on the cross dying under Roman persecution of, of the peasant Jews is not a wise idea to worship for the world. It's foolishness. But to us, it's life and eternity. You see, that's, that's what he's talking about. So, um, these things are foolishness, and he can't even understand, I want to say, their significance. He can't say that it's right. He can't say that this is, this is where the goods are. If you read Ephesians 1, and it doesn't tell you that there is depth to your eternal walk with God that you enjoy right now, you need to read it slower. <laughs> but the world looks at that and says, eh, yeah, mystical, spirit, uh, I don't know. It just it seems like it seems like a lot of wishful thinking or something. They can't welcome it and they cannot understand its significance because these things are spiritually appraised. Okay, but verse... He, but he who is spiritual appraises all things that he himself is appraised by no one. For who's known the mind of the Lord that he'll instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Now, Rick's question was about um, verse, verse 10. For to us God revealed these things of... of wonderful import eye hasn't seen and ear hasn't heard the word of god where you have a relationship with god is what he's talking about in verse nine god has revealed these things to us the apostles through the spirit for the spirit searches all things even the depths of god and so the question was is this the holy spirit or the human spirit and it's an interesting question because the idea of god searching god seems to be unnecessary but the the reason i take it to be the holy spirit in verse 10 is because um the idea of revelation for the Apostle Paul and the apostles to share the things that eyes haven't seen and ears haven't heard have other places say God is doing this revelation. So I think that's a divine work. Paul isn't just 
in his powerful human spirit discerning the depths of God without the Holy Spirit giving him special revelation. You've got to have the Holy Spirit's cut of this equation where he's giving you the word. It we don't just get special capabilities, special, you know, um, without the special revelation from the Spirit. That's one reason from other passages that I would argue that. And the other thing is that the comparison through this passage is like, like follows like. Like goes with like. God's revealed these things through the Spirit. And then verse 11 seems to be the explanation for the depths of God from the Spirit of God. Who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. I believe that he's making a comparison between what is presented as the Spirit of God, the Trinity, the, the third person. It's an analogy to our component, the human spirit, and we know within ourselves from our spiritual knowledge. So God's spirit knows God's things. I think that's he's doing the like compares with like, and it's the explanation. And that is, now, this is a conversation that we could write two books on, or a multi-volume set of books on, and, and trace through all the ramifications. Um, but I don't know if that's going to satisfy, or, but the, the explanation in verse 11 is the strongest reason I think he's talking about the Holy Spirit. But I do acknowledge God searching God seems to be um, hard until I say, okay, the spirit of man knows the thoughts of man in him. So, okay, no, that's, that's what it means is that he knows himself. I know myself. Nobody knows me but me kind of thing. Now, um, uh, last thing on this passage, the reason we're talking about it, it's a really important passage. A hundred years ago, a book was published that changed everything for me. <laughs> Grandpa in the faith wrote a book called He That Is Spiritual, and his first chapter traces out the difference between the spiritual man, the carnal man, and the, the unbeliever, the, the soulish man. Doesn't have a human spirit. And he, he told the truth about so many things in this book about how the Christian life works. And, um, and we are heirs to that work that he did, Louis Berry Schaefer, He That Is Spiritual. And I'd say that book is a more important legacy of his than perhaps anything else he wrote except the, expo- the, the further exposition of it in his Systematic Theology, Volume 6. So um, that's why, why we're talking about this because it is so significant to understand a couple things. Here's the big takeaway. Did you know you can fail as a Christian? <laughs> I didn't know that. Mm. Yeah, probably happening right now if you don't believe it. Um, you can fail as a Christian. We can be carnal and therefore acting like mere men, unbelievers. You can act like an unbeliever, think like an unbeliever, behave like an unbeliever in carnality. Possible. Crazy, but possible. And that's what Paul's doing with the Corinthians. He's saying you are acting like you don't have the spirit of God or the spirit which is from God. You think like unbelievers. You think like the world about life. And that's the big takeaway from this. And you know what people do with that? Well, I wonder if you're really a Christian. That's not what we're talking about, whether or not you're a Christian. So we're going to skip the doctrine that will change this problem for you and go back to the gospel. Okay, brother, well, you must not be a Christian. You need to believe on Jesus. And if we really aren't feeling it, and we're, we're carnal, and we don't know what to do about that, and our sinfulness. We don't know how to deal with sin as a Christian. It's just guilt, get eaten up by guilt or get enslaved to it. What we'll do is we'll say, well, I, I did believe, but maybe that wasn't enough. And then we got to do other things, like go to a revival, like walk an aisle, like get slain in the spirit and have this compelling experience, as Wesley described it, where he preached the gospel for 15 years and then he had his conversion where his heart felt warm within him. I can't find that in the Bible. I find believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Our favorite hymnist who wrote songs with the the, the guy that gave us the bell on the church, William H. Doan, Doan Park. Fanny Crosby was the lyricist and William H. Doan was the composer for some of her greatest songs. I love Fanny Crosby. She had most, well, several of the Psalms, most of the Pentateuch memorized before she was 10. But she became, as, and was raised as a Baptist with believe in Jesus as your Savior, but believed that she had a conversion experience once she finally found the Methodists. See, if it, it, that, this isn't how you deal with carnality. If you're sinful, you need to tell God about it because the whole point of sin is about you and Him 
It's not, well, I've really let myself down. You did. But that's really not as important as the infinite, loving God with his perfect righteousness is displeased. He wants you, as, as your father, to walk with him. He wants you to carry out his agenda. He wants you to act like you belong to him, like the relationship has had an impact, like he has actually trained you and you think like him. That's what he wants. Walk as beloved children. Walk in love and imitate God in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 and walk in love. That, that's the idea. And so when we are disobedient to him, when we're straying from him, we're going to be a prodigal. The solution is not to say, I shall now be born of my father and mother again. You don't need to go be born again, 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 again. I just feel like it didn't take. I got to get rebaptized and rededicate. You do need to rededicate yourself every single day. But the point is, the solution to carnality is not regeneration. The solution to carnality is confession. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And there is an entailment in confession. If you will not submit to God, you are guilty. If I won't submit to God, I am guilty of a sin called arrogance. You are either submitting to him or you're rebelling against him. There is no gray area. There's no middle ground in God on this issue. He is either Lord or you are rebelling. That's how it is. So if you're going to confess your sins and retain rebellion and disregard of him, you're going to remain carnal even though the sins you confess are forgiven because you're immediately guilty again of this arrogance, this rebellion, this pride. And so what, I mean, we're talking about some really deep stuff here. We talk about it all the time. People come to this church like, oh, the conviction. It's a blessing to have your load completely removed. Let the bricks go. Let the load go when you realize that Jesus paid for every sin that you'll ever commit already on the cross. And in position, you're already forgiven of all your sins, past, present, and future. And that means you have an eternal relationship with God that cannot be broken. And yet, you have in that relationship an expectation, a stewardship, a responsibility to walk with him, to love him, to obey him. And if you choose not to, we have a word for that. It's sin, and the status quo of someone who's going to walk in sin is carnality. You're walking after the flesh, and that is a form of functional death. And so the believer who really does have a heavenly father, because he really is born again by faith alone in Christ alone, is now walking in darkness. And that's 1 John chapter 1. If we walk in the light as God the Father himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. I have fellowship with God the Father, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, goes on cleansing us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, okay, if we confess our sins, if we say we haven't sinned, that's the passage that helps you most clearly understand what believers need to do about the problem of sin. And, and it, the hymnal is full of bad ideas about what to do about this. The, the thing is, the, the illustration that works best on this issue of confession and cleansing, it's not about the confession. That's not the word to look for. It's cleansing. It's through the whole of the Word of God. It's in John chapter 13. He washes his disciples' feet and says, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me to Peter. Peter says, wash the whole me. And he says, no, you've already done that by the word I spoke to you, but I must wash your feet because they got dirty. There's a partial fouling and a partial cleansing. John 13 is your core passage that teaches this. Now, you combine that with the Old Testament system of the priests and how they had to go to the labor before they would perform their duties. You are a believer priest, and you do not serve under the Levitical Mosaic system, but you are a priest in a new royal priesthood. That's the argument of the book of Hebrews. And this priesthood requires you to perform your priestly duties of representation before God in a cleansed state. You need to get clean when you defile yourself through sin. And what are the sins? Things we say, do, and think that we shouldn't, that God said not to. And I will also say, now that I'm a father, when you tell your children to do something and they don't do it, it's no less rebellion than when you tell them not to do something and they do do it. That's my view on sin. And when you look at all the commands of the New Testament, we are responsible to the Lord Jesus Christ to love self-sacrificially. If we're not going to do it, we're disobeying him. And I would definitely uh, seek 
some cleansing from that personal defilement. Sometimes, well, I didn't know that was a sin. I shouldn't have come to church today. I, was, I wasn't aware of that. Now, now I've got to confess. But guess what? Well, I don't know what all the sins are. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. We confess the sins. It doesn't say I'm a sinner. It says confess our sins. That's the things that we're aware of that we know we've done, thought said, or not done, thought said, that we should have. The things that God doesn't want us to do. We have violated his character in this way or that way. Gossip. The tongue is a flame of fire, right? uh, James chapter 3. The gossip will kill you. It'll kill me. It'll kill us. Sins of the tongue. We need to confess it. We also need to stop it. Isolate it. Don't do it. But gossip is just one example of something that if you become aware that you've done this, own it to God, right? And he cleanses you and forgives you. But it says if we confess, he forgives our sins. But then he says, and cleanses us, that's the cleaning from all unrighteousness. So that means that you know, one thing that this applies, the way this applies, if you know something that you've done that you shouldn't, you need to quit pretending you didn't and tell him. God, I did it, and I need you to clean me up. Guess what he does? He says, I will. He says, I do. That's 1 John 1, 9, and you need to trust him about that. If, you've, if you're clean, you're clean. Don't say, I just feel so dirty. No, you confessed it. You're going to let him clean you up. But don't go back to it. Don't return to, as a dog to its vomit. Just isolate it. Leave it. That's repentance. That's changing your mind. That's saying, I don't want that. I choose not to do that. That's a, that's a change of mind. Now, You know the sins that you know, but you don't know the sins that you don't know. Your daddy wants you to come to him. He wants you to tell him and be honest with him and open with him. And so when you tell him what you know, he cleans you up from all that you don't know. And he continues to teach you. And he continues to train you. And he continues to groom you because he has an eternal and awesome purpose for you. And we're not here just to get saved so we can ride on a cruise ship until until the sweet by and by. We're here because we're on a mission. We need to grow up spiritually to function in a mature way in the mission he has for us. Every one of you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a spiritual gift. It is a special enablement from God that you get from the moment you first believe in Christ. The Holy Spirit sovereignly gives it to you, and you are that, what he makes you. But you have to grow into its function. You have to grow up spiritually to express it in a mature way. And in 1 Corinthians 13, the greatest is love. In 1 Corinthians 13, the universal responsibility we have to love one another trumps all spiritual gift function. And I, th- I take that to mean that when you work for the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit of God in your spiritual gift, this is a special enablement for you to love one another. A special enablement for you to love one another. I believe, let me give you an example, that I have a gift to teach. I believe I'm a pastor teacher. And I think that's a spiritual gift in Ephesians 4.11. And I think I received this spiritual gift when I was a wee three years old. And I think that it's a good thing I didn't preach any sermons at three years old. I had to grow up spiritually enough to express that gift. And as I grew as a kid and as I grew with the Lord, I can look back now and say, yeah, I can see this was happening. Very interesting convoluted process. Now, this enablement, though, is the most important way that I think I can love you. I believe, and I've always believed this, I've always been taught this, that the way a pastor loves, expresses genuine Christian agape love for the flock is to feed them. That's my giftedness to do. So what I do here is to be an expression of the love of God. If you look at the list of spiritual gifts that I think continue, like helps, administration, exhortation, um, evangelist, I think, I think if you look at these and say, how does this enable someone to love? Think about the gift of like a help, somebody that can, can help and, and they're, they're good at that. A giver, there's a gift of giving. Lord, I want the gift of giving because it means you've got to give me something to give. <laughs> But, if, but think about it. these are all ways that you can just kind of supercharge being a Christian and loving one another. It's really neat um, when you think about it. And, you know, don't get, I'm sorry I used the example of pastor. It's what I know from experience, right? I, it, there are as many gifts in the room as there are people who know Jesus as their Savior. 
And they all need to function or this body dies. The body has to have all of its parts functioning. All right, so thanks for those questions. Let's turn, <laughs> let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew. In our closing moments, uh, Matthew chapter 26, please. I wanted to ask you a question. Last week, Ryan taught um, out of uh, Philippians chapter 2, first hour, and the birth narratives of the genealogies in Matthew and Luke, second hour. And uh, we're working together on that and um, uh, the, the Christmas season. And so I wanted to ask you, I asked you if you knew what authority was. Let's go on the other side of it and ask you if you know what humility is. Could you give a good biblical definition or example of humility? Okay, that sounds like Philippians 2. Esteeming one another better than yourselves. Or at the end of chapter 1, right? It's in, the, it's in Philippians. Somewhere in there. <laughs> um, that's a great example. Esteeming the other, more important. Yes, sir? Jesus in the garden, not my will, but thy will be done. Now see, if you go to breakfast with me on Thursday, you can't like, tell people what I'm going to say. That's Matthew 26, <laughs> right around verse 38. No, that is, that's, that's what I, where I want to get to. Pretend like you didn't hear that yet. We're trying to build something. Um, yeah, Adam. What about the end of Job where God says, who are you to ask the living God? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the deep? Who are you? You know, the, 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 the 40 or whatever questions that God peppers Job with at the end. Right. That, that's a great, he puts Job in his place. Don't you like um, to be put in your place? <laughs> Once you have a sense of God as the righteous and sovereign loving God that he is, you, you are going to learn to love being helped into the right perspective about yourself. It's an offense. It's an affront. The gospel is offensive. Basically, what, what, what they we're saying in the gospel is that you have a problem with God and there's nothing you can do about it. It is a terminal condition. And, and you have no hope. And there's nothing about you that is going to be pleasing to God because of your sin. That is so offensive. Just, I, I, I'm sorry, but I'm a pretty good person. I've only killed two people. And the rest of them I haven't. <laughs> I've only murdered in my heart once a month by, by hatred. I, I don't usually hate people, just a little bit. I mean, I usually give, I pay most of my taxes. You know, I'm, I'm basically, I've never kicked a puppy on purpose. And, you know, that, that kind of like fudging where, no, that's not how God works. He's perfectly righteous. See? And so the gospel is offensive because it tells us we're sinners. We need a savior. But the gospel itself needs to be the offense, not the Christian sharing it. Hey, I'm a sinner too. I'm, I have no hope. There is no hope for me except the cross of Christ. That's the grace of God. That's the Christian message. Any other message about righteousness and holiness that doesn't start with I'm a broken sinner that needs a savior like everyone else is probably going to be a false gospel. Now, I think we have in Philippians chapter 2, like we saw last week, verses 5 through 11, a picture of God's pattern for us in humility. Have this thinking yourselves, which was also in Christ, who basically humbled himself before the Father to do the Father's will, to, to carry out God the Father's plan. And he humbled himself all the way to the point of death on the cross. And for this reason also, he was highly exalted. The pattern of Christ is crushing humiliation in humbling himself before the Father and suffering with an outcome, as he trusts in the Father, of exaltation and glorification. That's the pattern. And that, my friends, is what I believe is the, 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 the way to think about Christian humility. Let me give you an example. When I was first introduced to the concept of humility, when I first heard about it, I was being told things like, I'm not all that. Well, I, was, I thought I was. After all, it's me. Didn't you know? It's me. I mean, haven't you heard that song? I think it's hymn number two, How Great I Art. You know? This is, but, but see, this is how we are. We all think that way. That's the ex explanation of racism. It's me, and you're different, so you're bad. You're it's just a sinful condition all humans carry. That we think we're good, right? Better than, than the other, because it's us. 
And that's, it's, it's something you'll never fully say you're done with. Something we constantly have to come to ourselves about. And this is very helpful for me to, to be shown that I'm not all that. But um, see, an unbeliever can know that. That's not Christian humility. It's not good enough. The unbeliever, have you ever known unbelievers with some, with some humility that knew that other people were more important? That were altruistic, that served others? Have you known? That's not the work of the Spirit in their lives. And someone say, well, down the street, the, the liberal people will say, no, maybe it is, you know, all roads lead to God, okay. No, that is not the work of the Spirit, but it is some truth the person has gotten hold of, that you're not all that. I'm not all that, right? But Christian humility is exhibited in Jesus Christ. It is not just saying that you're not more than you are. It's saying that you are what you are. It's saying the truth about yourself before God. In fact, if you say, I'm a nothing, I am worthless, you just get in front of the mirror and you do some harangue time. You ever harangue yourself? You just, you terrible person. I hope you don't. It's really silly, but um, uh, you're not helping matters. If you've got a therapist that says, get in the mirror and and really uh, talk yourself down. Probably need to switch out. But uh, (laughs) now, if you're self-abusive about what a worthless person you are because of all the things that you've done that are wrong, then you're actually arrogant and not humble. It's arrogance because you're contradicting the word of God. God made you and he gets to say what you are. And I'm going to humble myself and say, God, you have your way in defining what I am. And what I find is I'm a sinner, but I'm created in God's image. And so the sinful part means the image has been marred and somewhat broken. But I'm, I'm created in God's image. And so I'm not going to say I'm the worst person in the world. Well, so is everybody else. What I'm going to say is I'm a sinner that's made in God's image for God's purposes, fearfully and wonderfully. I'm also going to say this. I don't derive my worth from it just being me. I derive my worth and value from the creator's hand that made me. And I do have value because he says so. That's humility. I'm not the captain of my soul. I'm scared of that poem. Invictus is satanic. I'm not the captain of my soul. The scroll does matter. God gets to say what I am and what I should be and what I should do. That's humility. And I want us to show you real quick as we close at the end of uh, Matthew 26. It's Jesus in his prayer with his father. In verse 39, Jesus is praying. He's uh, under the greatest pressure of his life. And he's suffering a load that um, no, none of us can imagine. Every one of you is suffering as a Christian a load that nobody can imagine. Nobody knows what you're going through but you. And nobody knows how your strength that you have to bear this is being tested and weighed down. I can look at your thing and you share it with me and I can say, well, I don't know why that would hurt so much. And you can say, well, maybe you can lift more weight than I can because this is killing me. Maybe, maybe, maybe um, I can look at your problem and you tell me about it and, and I have some more wisdom about it and say, uh, and, and this is, is this the worst thing you've dealt with? Is this the hardest? Yeah, it's the worst. And then I, I'm a Christian toward you and I bear your load with you. Maybe I'm looking at your situation and I say, I don't know how I could ever manage that. What that person is going through, I don't have the spiritual resources. The more I listened to my seminary professors tell their stories when I was at Dallas, the more I was like, oh, I don't know if I really want to be in ministry. <laughs> Because of the hardships and the, the, just the sufferings of this life. But I, the more I've grown, the more I've just talked to you. And you're all carrying some heavy, heavy things. You've all got to take up your cross daily and follow him. There's going to be suffering, and Jesus is your model. He went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. I think this is the mechanical way to address being a humble person before God. I think these are the mechanics of humility. It is you have your preferences and desires, and God has his preferences and desires, and you need to say, mine need to take a second place, and God needs to get his way. I believe that is the mechanics. If you can do that, if you'll do that in the moment, in the situation, in the hardship, in the, in the blessing time, in the, in the, you know, at the party. If you can do that, if you can say, God, you have your way. You have your way. 
and I'll trust you. That's, there's a faith component to this. There's a knowledge that God's way for you is better than you can ask for yourself, right? But letting yourself out of that and say, God, you have your preference and let, let me know what that is. In fact, conform my desires to yours. Help me adopt what you want. If you, if you will do this, you will find yourself walking in real Christian humility because you will be recognizing God's sovereign. You're his creature. His preference for you based on his infinite love, he loves you more than you do. He knows omnip- omnisciently everything, so he knows you better than you do. And in his love and omniscience, he wants for you better than you want for yourself. So not as I will, as you will. Now, what's the outcome of this prayer? He does not get to sidestep the cup. He has to drink it. He has to die for our sins. That's what that means. He has to have our sins judged in his own body on the cross. And he screams out, not from the Roman lash, but from the darkness of God's judgment on the hill of the skull on Golgotha or Calvary, he screams, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In agony, and the cup is being born. He is dealing and and suffering this load. For this reason also, he was highly exalted and given a name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, whether in heaven, on earth, or under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The pattern is not just, God wants me to suffer, so here we go. The pattern is that eternity is coming. Time is when we suffer for God's sake as we continue to trust him. And he's really testing our faith and cultivating our character. And the exaltation is inevitable. It is inevitable. You are going to be exalted. Your key passage on humbling yourself is 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he will exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him, for he cares for you. You're not going to be trusting God, or you're not going to be humbling yourself before God unless you're trusting him. So it's an essential component in terms of mechanics. If you want to be humble, you say, God, you have your way with this day. And you remember, and I'm trusting you with who you are, that you want the best. So I just, I, I let you have it. Heavenly Father, we ask for you to continue to strengthen us to want what you want, to substitute our will Really, Father, your will for our will, so that we would come to want your way because we trust you. Father, we confess that at times we don't believe that you have our best. We give in to that diabolical implication that you're not good, that you don't want the best for us, that you're keeping us back from something we want because we're so fixated on the details of this life. And I ask that you continue to strengthen us to look away unto Jesus, to be empowered to humble ourselves before you. God, glorify yourselves in the lives of each and every one of us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.